Welcome to Appearance Matters, the unique podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England, investigating everything related to how we look. I'm Nicola. And I'm Nadia. And we have now reached episode five. Thank you to everyone who has listened to, liked and shared our podcast so far. If you haven't managed to catch our previous episodes, please stop now and go back. All of our episodes are full of interesting stuff not to be missed and are all available on SoundCloud and iTunes. Please rate and review us too. In today's episode, we'll look at what it means to be visibly different. But first, let's remind our listeners that the main abstract submission deadline for our upcoming conference, Appearance Matters 7, has now passed. Don't worry, though, you can still submit a rapid communication poster and register for the conference under the early bird rate. For all queries related to the conference, please visit our website via the link in our bio. As we've described in previous episodes, the Centre for Appearance Research has two mainstreams of work, body image and visible difference. Today's episode focuses on the latter. So, what exactly do we mean by visible difference? Well, visible difference is the term used to describe a health condition which involves an appearance-altering component. Uh, A better known and perhaps more medical term is disfigurement. An example of a visible difference or a disfigurement might be a birthmark or a cleft lip, which are present from birth, or something which is acquired later in life as a result of an injury or an illness, such as a burn scar or as the result of cancer treatment. According to the latest estimations by the charity Changing Faces, more than a million people have a disfigurement to the face and or to the body, and that's just in the UK. So, what kind of challenges might someone who is visibly different meet? In the following audio clips, patients affected by a visible difference and their families highlight some of the key issues. When I go out, I I do get people like looking at me, constantly staring or pointing, laughing. I got so I wouldn't go out. I was trying to go out. Life was very difficult at that time. People think less of me just because of the way I look. How can I make sure that my daughter has every opportunity and has a normal life as possible in a society that is going to be shocked about the way she looks? Many thanks to Changing Faces for permission to use these audio clips in our podcast. Changing Faces is a UK-based charity offering support to people and families living with conditions, marks or scars that affect their appearance. To find out more about the support that Changing Faces offer, Nicola spoke to the founder and CEO of Changing Faces, Dr James Partridge, OBE. Hi James, thank you very much for joining us. Great to be here. So, first of all, could you please tell us why you set up the charity Changing Faces? Well, it goes back a very long way. As you may know, I was in a car fire uh, back in 1970. I was 18, and it completely changed my life. I experienced 40% burns to my body and very severely burned on the face and hands, and it probably took me five to six years of adjustment, lots of surgery to my face and body, and by the mid-70s, 
is I had adjusted successfully to my disfigurement. 15 years later, I got the opportunity to write a book and the book was called Changing Faces, and it was really an attempt to pass on the lessons that I'd learned in coming to terms with my disfigurement. Why did I set up Changing Faces? Because I believed that there was a major gap in the psychosocial help provided for people with any form of disfigurement, like mine after trauma or from birth, from accident, from cancer, from skin conditions, paralysis, any form. And that that gap could be filled if we were clever and innovative, and that we should also make a major attempt to challenge public attitudes and stigma around disfigurement, because I didn't feel that it was fair what was being offered to people, and I, I believe that there was a lot of injustice associated with disfigurement which needed tackling. Fantastic. Thank you. So to build on that then, the work of Changing Faces is divided roughly into to two areas, changing lives and changing minds. So could you tell us a bit more about each of these areas? Yes, certainly. Changing Lives is all about helping individuals and their families cope with the psychological and social impact of having a disfigurement. And we offer two services, our psychosocial help through specially trained Changing Faces practitioners. And we are offering that psychosocial cognitive behavioral package with a strong emphasis on social skills. And the second aspect is our skills camouflage service which helps people to build confidence by managing to conceal their disfigurement successfully so they can better able manage other people's reactions and gain self-confidence. So we provide those services but we also advocate very strongly that they should be available as routine in the health system which is in NHS terms tier two help, which is not clinical psychology level, but just a bit below that. So that's the changing lives work. The changing minds efforts are very much to do with influencing public attitudes and institutional behaviors. So we're talking about how we change the way our society thinks about disfigurement and behaves towards people who have it. Our campaign is for what we we call face equality, like race equality, and we work in schools with employers, public sector bodies. We are challenging the media and the film industry, and we are also very strongly pushing government for improved anti-discrimination legislation. So that's our Changing Minds work. Changing public attitudes and culture around disfigurement will take many years, but we think we've made a reasonable start. Thank you. So you've clearly come a long way. Um, so what do you feel are the main achievements of the charity to date? Well, that's a big one. I think one of the most important breakthroughs we made was to evaluate pre and post the first 100 people who came through our innovative pioneering workshop. And that was a very important breakthrough because it demonstrated that people could acquire new social skills that would enable them to feel better about themselves and to manage their futures. 
the setting up of the Outlook unit in Bristol in 97 was another milestone. And of course, the creation of CAR was a really important milestone because it was reflecting that UE understood that this research really needed to be taken forward seriously. And then we go into the 2000s, and I guess the standout uh, moments are when we launched the campaign for face equality through the posters that we put up on the London tubes, through I read the news on Channel 5 for a week. That sort of thing really did put this issue onto a more public agenda. So there are some good achievements, but both come to mind, certainly. Thank you. It's clear that you've achieved a lot, but what do you feel is still left to do? Oh, we're still we're in the foothills here. If you look at the psychosocial help that's available to patients in the NHS, it's pitifully inadequate in many, many specialties. So there's a very long way to go in advocating for proper, routine, regular, integrated psychosocial help. We don't think that this is anywhere near where we want it to be, and we're determined to keep pushing and pressing, using the research that demonstrates the need and hoping that we can gradually make the case stronger and stronger that psychosocial help is extremely cost-effective for the NHS and indeed for other health systems. It enables and empowers kids and young people and adults with all sorts of disfiguring conditions to go live full lives. The other side of the coin, the campaign for face equality, is still just in its early stages. I'm pleased to say that Training Faces was successful in getting disfigurement covered and protected under the Quality Act of 2010. So there is some protection, but we don't think it's adequate. We know far too many instances where people are not receiving fair treatment in school or in work or indeed in customer service. We want to turn that campaign into a movement. We are hoping in the next five years to make some really serious strides to ensuring that people with disfigurements are treated fairly and properly. Of course, ultimately, it's about creating a world where everyone is respected and given the opportunities to live life that they want. Doing a very good job. Thanks, James. So in thinking ahead to the upcoming Appearance Matters 7 conference in June, as the CEO of a leading charity, why do you attend these conferences? Appearance Matters conferences have been incredibly important in bringing researchers and clinicians and academic community together but also giving the chance for those of us who run organizations that are interested in these issues, the chance to meet, to network, and to influence how academic research and clinical practice goes forward in the future. So I really welcome these occasions, and they are wonderful moments to challenge and to celebrate too. And I'm delighted that what was a tiny little idea is now a highly successful international event. It's great. That was Dr James Partridge, OBE, founder and CEO of the charity Changing Faces, talking to Nicola from his office in London. You can find out more about the charity Changing Faces by visiting their recently rebranded website www.changingfaces.org.uk it's clear that there are a range of challenges which people affected by a visible difference can meet and that the impact of these challenges can be significant. 
It's great to know that there are charities such as Changing Faces who can offer support. But what more can we do to improve the lives of people affected by appearance-altering conditions? Well, as we know, the Centre for Appearance Research strives not only to better understand the issues associated with visible difference, but to make a difference to people's lives in the real world. In other words, we aim to translate our research findings into practice. Absolutely. And a great example of this is the research carried out by the Clinical Standards Advisory Group for Cleft Lip and Palate. Their 1998 report demonstrated that at the time, services for children born with a cleft lip and palate and their families was not meeting the required standards. One of the key recommendations of this report was for psychology to become an integral part of the cleft service. And shortly after the report was published, psychologists were introduced to NHS cleft teams around the UK. So, this was really a recognition that the appearance-altering conditions, such as cleft lip and palate, are about more than just the medical side of things. It demonstrated that the health service's commitment to supporting patients' and families' psychological as well as physical needs. Yes, and this is interesting because there are thousands of adults currently living in the UK who were born with a cleft lip or a cleft palate, but who grew up before these new services came into play and therefore didn't have access to psychological support. Nicola works closely with the Cleft Lip and Palate Association, or CLAPPER for short, a charity dedicated to supporting those affected by cleft. Many adults who are born with cleft now volunteer for CLAPPER, and so we decided to ask them what they think about recent changes to cleft services. Growing up, the coping mechanisms were invented yourself, your friends, your family. That's how you got through the operations and the treatment and and everything, just because you had to find it from somewhere. Uh, Some had better experiences than others, and obviously some can cope better than others, but there were certainly things that that pushed my buttons and and made me upset because there are things that I've never thought about or that I've encountered, and uh, children is one of them. Never considered the fact that I could have a child with a cleft. All of a sudden, I think last year, someone said, well, how do you feel about that? (laughs) Tears everywhere, blindsided by it. So psychology, the fact that there is a clinical psychologist dealing with patients now, that is one of the best things, I think, that's come out. Certainly support and having things explained to you as a child. Nothing was ever explained to me. I have a burning recollection of going to hospital and being left there for a week and just not knowing what was going to be done with me and just being absolutely distraught. And it's just so much better now with psychologists just explaining things to you. And I'm so glad that's, that's happened because it's only now that I've come to grips with all of that, really. Total lack of communication, total lack of any support other than self-support and up until the last probably four years of my life. So it's a bit hit and miss and a bit fortunate, I suppose, that my self-support has got where I am today. But I just sometimes wonder what it would have been like if I hadn't done the things I've done in terms of self-help, self-support, determination. And I think that probably echoes around the room uh, in all those respects. And uh, it's good to know that, slowly but surely, things are coming out of that. I've never actually met or spoken to somebody with a cleft until four years ago. Yeah, so I think definitely all that treatment I had when I was at school, there was definitely issues then when you go back into school and how do you cope? So one summer I had my rhinoplasty nose operation and so you go back to school in September and you look different. 
and, and how are you supposed to cope with that? How do you communicate to your friends? How do you communicate to your teachers? And what about those kids that pick on you anyway because you had a cricket nose and now you haven't? And, and there's a whole load of things around that which, had there been some support, that would have been really useful. But at the time, it wasn't there. I'm talking now more than I've ever talked about my clients. Yeah. I think people coming through the system now are more confident probably about dealing with the cleft and the cleft issue. It still takes time though, I mean I can remember being spoken at mm. rather than with or to yeah. and my opinions didn't really matter, I was going to have XYZ whether I liked it or not and I didn't have anybody to talk to and I'm probably 10 years younger than everybody in this room. So, so I kind of had the clinical psychologist when I was going through probably the last two bits of surgery and they helped mentally. I've experienced it from both the old system and the new system because I've had lots of treatment over the last five years. We did feel very much like you're just talked out decisions were made for you, they were put on you and you just went with whatever was done. Now they have a lot more intervention, interaction with you um, and any concerns that you might have you can actually bring it up with your psychologist which then the psychologist can voice them for you if you don't feel that you can. For me, definitely, it has been a big shift and a big change from what I experienced previously to what I have now. Thank you very much to Clapper and to the Adult Voices Council for speaking with us for this podcast. Clapper offer a range of services, support and volunteer activities specifically for people born with cleft lip and palate and their families. You can find out more about Clapper by visiting their website www.clapper.com. Thanks also to Carl PhD student Matt Ridley, who helped with these recordings. In this episode, we've heard from people affected by a visible difference, as well as from the charities Changing Faces and the Cleft Lip and Palette Association. Although most people adjust well to the challenges associated with a visible difference, the delivery of psychological support as well as the world-leading research carried out by CAR and our colleagues around the world, remains crucial. We'll be talking more about this research in upcoming episodes, but in the meantime, you can visit the CAR website to find out more. Thanks to everyone who's contributed to Episode 5 of Appearance Matter, the podcast, and thanks to all our listeners. If you've enjoyed this episode, please let us know by rating us and leaving us a review on iTunes. Don't forget that early bird registration for the Appearance Matters 7 conference, taking place in London in June, closes on the 31st of March. To find out more about the conference, to register or to submit a rapid communication poster abstract, please visit the link in our bio. Final thanks to our conference sponsors, the Healing Foundation, the University of the West of England and the Dove Self-Esteem Project. And thanks to you, David Inthacal, for our theme music.